So I'm Pastor Michael, and uh, we are doing a sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. What are the spiritual disciplines? They are a set of Christian practices that bring us into the presence of God, into fellowship with Him, and that as we do them, we are shaped, we, we grow into the likeness and into the image of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at evangelism. Evangelism is when you tell an unbeliever about the good news of Jesus. And this is going to conclude our series. Now, I think, I think that uh, evangelism, of all the spiritual disciplines, is the least practiced. It is the most neglected of the, of the disciplines in our church, and I know this because I have spoken to so many of you, and you have told me in hushed tones that you keep your head down at work, and you know you might want to evangelize, but you don't know what to do. And so today I want to strengthen you, I want to encourage you, and I want to instruct you. And so we're going to look at our text. This is actually a classic text on evangelism, very famous. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 14, and then I'll read to you all the way down to verse 18. This is uh, printed in your bulletin, and for those of you at home, it's, it's on your screen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the word of God. And so we're going to look at this text through the lens of three objections, three obstacles to people doing evangelism. And uh, they are number one, and this is my outline. Number one, the feeling of inadequacy. Number two, the fear of giving offense. And then number three, the belief that the gospel doesn't have the power to save. So let's begin. Number one, the feeling of inadequacy. And here people say, you know, I don't feel trained to do this. I, I, I don't know how to answer people's questions. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And sort of implicit there is this question, well, Pastor Michael, isn't that your job? You know, shouldn't we leave this to the professionals so that it's not my job. And here I want to take you back to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Notice Jesus does not say, go therefore all of you extroverts. All of you with great communication skills, all of you who are skilled in evangelism, you go and make disciples. The rest of you, 
just hang out, sing some hymns, and then wait until I return. Is that Jesus' instructions? No. The Great Commission is for all believers. Or let me put it this way. What is the purpose of your life? This is the most important question that you can ask. If life, if your life is about advancing in your career and then having a family, right? If it's about working hard and then you retire and that's it. If that's it, then your life will feel hollow because you need a purpose. You need a mission that is bigger than your life. And I think this is one of the chief benefits of doing evangelism because it energizes your Christian life. Because when you see yourself as part of the grand purposes of God, when you see your life on this mission to seek and to save the lost, you will have this this driving purpose of your life. Your life will be infused with meaning and, and drama And this is why evangelism is a spiritual discipline. Because that feeling of inadequacy, which we all have, should drive you into God, into prayer, into reading scripture, and into dependence on Him. So, how do we do it? How do we actually do evangelism? And here, let me make the case that the most effective way to do evangelism is through your relationships, through your relationships. Michael Green, um, he wrote several decades ago, let me wait until the plane stops. Uh, Michael Green, uh, he wrote several decades ago what is now a classic book. It's actually required reading in seminary. It's called Evangelism in the Early Church. And uh, recently, uh, in preparation for the sermon, I I reread it again. And uh, he's looking at the growth of the early church in the first three centuries. And in the book, his argument is that this explosive growth of the ancient church was actually not primarily through open-air preaching. You know, sort of these big evangelistic events that we might imagine. Because you have to remember that Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman world. Now, you do see it in the book of Acts. You know, that was the ministry of the apostles. But apart from the apostles, the growth of the church was mostly through social networks. So that, I think Michael Green, he makes this case really excellently. You know, of course, I don't have the time to to walk us through it. But the gospel was carried primarily through family relationships and through business contacts, so that it was through the lives of ordinary Christians that the church grew. And you see that in our passage, in verse 15, that's the classic verse, right? Notice that it's addressed not to pastors, not to evangelists, but to all of us, to ordinary believers. Verse 15, Peter writes, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Again, this is addressed to all believers. And notice that implicit in that verse is the assumption... I'll wait for the plane to pass again.
And notice, implicit in the verse is the assumption that you are living so differently, that you are not blending in with the people, you're not just keeping your head down and minding your own business, but your Christian identity, that's the assumption, your Christian identity is well known. You're not being obnoxious about it. You're not, you know, trying to impose your Christianity by force. But notice in the text, it says, when somebody asks. You see, somebody is asking. This is a conversation that you have been invited into. Do you know why? Because you have earned the right through your relationship, by your conduct in life. And what does this tell us? It tells us that evangelism is not just proclamation ministry, you know, sort of like what I'm doing, you know, a pastor preaching at the pulpit, you know, that's important too. That has its place. But it is first and foremost, evangelism is a lifestyle. It is a life full of truth and goodness and moral beauty. You have to live a life that requires an explanation. That's what was happening in the early church. The the early Christians were radically identified with their neighbors in love, and at the same time, they were radically separate and different from them in holiness. And that combination just exploded the church. Some of you might say, well, why can't we just leave it at that? Why can't I just let my deeds speak for me? It's like that quote from Francis of Assisi. Do you guys know that quote? which is actually a misquote, but the quote goes like this, preach the gospel, use words when necessary, right? Preach the gospel, use words when necessary. And when people use, when sometimes people use that quote, what they're saying is, see, I don't have to actually speak, I just have to do good deeds. The problem with that, and and let me push against that, okay? It's not either or. It's both and. It's both words and deeds. They have to go together. Because words alone are not effective. If you just preach at someone, they're not going to receive it. They have to see the power of the gospel evident in your life. But at the same time, deeds alone are not enough. I think a lot of us, we have this attitude, you know, if I'm just a good person... If I'm kind, if I'm, if I'm a pleasant person, you know, if I'm involved in charitable works, somehow people will get the hint. And they'll say to themselves, you know, I should be a Christian just like them. And that just doesn't happen. Becky Pippert uh, wrote what I think is a really helpful book on evangelism just this past year called Stay Salt. And it's actually a follow-up. It's a, it's a sequel to her earlier book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, which was published 20 years ago. I, I remember reading it in college. It's a sort of a classic book. And in those 20 years, you know, Becky Pipper, she's been involved in this evangelism ministry where she goes around to churches and uh, encourages them and supports them. And she says in the book, she says, she noticed in in the last 10 years, and especially in the last five years, there has been this rising interest in doing justice, in doing mercy ministry. 
But at the same time, she says, she has noticed this deep hesitancy, especially among young people, to actually evangelize. And she has this really punchy quote, really pungent quote that I want to I wanna read to you. Listen to this. She writes, Is it possible that social justice, while terribly important, she affirms the value of this Christian ministry, that social justice has become for many Western Christians the easy default option. Acts of mercy remain popular in our culture. Evangelism, however, is now counterintuitive and politically incorrect. There will always be something easier and more popular to do than share the gospel. And then she writes this, I wonder if the verbal aspect of evangelism has to be relearned as an act of choice and a sacrificial commitment. I think Becky Pippert has absolutely nailed it on the head. We are, for the most part, happy to do social justice. But we are unwilling to engage in evangelism because it puts us at odds with our culture. And I have more to say on this on the next point, but my point here is that they have to go together. It's not one or the other. So how do we actually do evangelism through our relationships? And Becky Pippert here has, I think, three great, you know, practical pieces of advice. And here they are. Number one, number one, she says, start with prayer. Pray for courage. Pray for open doors. Pray. Do you, do you know the power of prayer? That God answers prayers. Pray. Second thing she says, look at the relationships that are already in your life. You don't have to go and find random people to tell them about Jesus. But God has already placed people in your life. And these are the people that you love, that you care about. These are not projects. You you should never treat people as projects. And then she says, move with intentionality. Invite them out to coffee or invite them to dinner at your home. This is obviously after the pandemic. Look for ways to initiate a conversation about Christianity. And here I want to say, you know, often we feel this pressure that you have to cram in the whole gospel into a single presentation and really, that's totally unrealistic. It's going to take many, many conversations. And each one is not going, each one is going to feel incomplete. And after each conversation, you're going to feel like you've stumbled, you've, you've messed things up. And many times people will ask questions and you don't know the answer. You don't know what to say. That's okay. You know what you should tell them? You should say, that is an excellent question. I don't know the answer. Let me get back to you on that. And then let that drive you back into study, into reading scripture and searching for an answer. And I think nothing will enliven, nothing will fill your scripture reading with purpose than when you're not just reading for yourself, you're reading for your friend, for the person you love. And then over this, you know what will happen? You will become more and more equipped. You will grow 
in your evangelism skills. This is a paradigm that I've been, you know, pounding through this sermon series, which is when it comes to all the disciplines, and this is true of any life habit, you're not going to be good at it at first, right? None of the spiritual disciplines are naturally intuitive, but they all take practice. They take perseverance. You have to keep at it for a long, long time before you start to become good at it. And then let me say this. Let me say this. You will never feel sufficiently adequate to do evangelism. Never. If that's what you're waiting for, you'll never do it. Just do it. Just do it. And then number three, her advice is, and this is going to be the most challenging, and this is, this is, this is going to take the most, you know, this is going to be the most um, difficult for you to consider. She says, so you initiate these conversations, and if your friend, if your family member, or your coworker, if they're interested and they want to learn more, offer to host a Bible study with them. Maybe at your home, or maybe at a coffee shop, and she makes this great point. She says, you know, many people have never, they have never read the Bible. Never. And they're curious. They want to read the Bible. They, they just want to read it with somebody that they know, somebody that they trust. And she suggests, you know, read one of the four Gospels with them. She has written study guides just for this purpose. And then she says, you could describe it this way. Tell them it's a book club to investigate the life of Jesus. Let me say one final thing and then we'll move on to the second point. The key issue here is confidence. We need confidence to do evangelism. Where does our confidence come from? Our confidence comes from God. It is He who opens blind eyes. It is He who softens hard hearts. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel but we are not responsible for the results. The results, whether success or failure, belong to God. But our job is to be faithful with the mission that He has given us. And so that's the first point. This feeling of inadequacy, this feeling that you're not ready, that you're not trained. And my counsel here is just do it. You will get on-the-job training. The second objection, the second... um, obstacle is the fear of giving offense. The fear of giving offense. So Sam Chan has uh, written what I think is a really helpful book on evangelism called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. And he says, you know, we live in a modern secular world where it's okay to be a Christian as long as you keep it to yourself. But if you bring your Christianity into the public square, if you try to convert someone, then that is totally unacceptable because what you are saying to someone is that their religion or maybe their lack of a religion is wrong. And that's offensive in our culture. And therefore, Sam Chan says, evangelism is now very much taboo. It's taboo in our culture there are anti-proselytization rules in the workplace so that evangelism can be interpreted as harassment. You can be fired for this. And even when there are no explicit rules, 
there are unspoken norms and expectations. I don't have to tell you. You can do real damage in your career, in your professional development, if you are known as a religious fanatic at work. And outside the workplace, you can lose friendships. You can damage your family relationships. For many families, this is a very sensitive issue. And so there are real and significant risks to doing evangelism in our secular culture. And Sam Chen says we have to acknowledge that. So what should we do? What should we do? When you look at evangelism in the New Testament, it's interesting to me that it is always, it is always in the context of suffering and persecution. Always. For example, in our passage in verse 14, Peter is talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 16, he talks about being slandered, being reviled for your good behavior in Christ. And the reason is because in the Roman world, which was a pluralistic society, okay, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of religions. You know, there was the old pagan religions, there were the new religions from the East, they were called mystery religions, and they were all acceptable in the Roman Empire. You know, many people stacked several religions on top of each other. You could believe as many gods, as many religions as you want, as long as you also worshipped the emperor which was seen as your patriotic duty. But the one thing you must not do is to claim that your God is the only God because that was seen as exclusionary, that was seen as unpatriotic. And therefore, Christians, they were objects of hatred and persecution. And it is in that context that Peter is instructing the believers. And what does he tell them? Verse 14, he says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because in the early church, fear was a major stumbling block for evangelism. It still is today. And then in verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. The word honor there can also mean revere. It can mean fear. And that's the answer. The antidote to fear of the culture. The antidote to fear of social rejection is to fear God to honor Christ above all things. Listen to what Paul has to say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7-8. through 8. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying, yes, evangelism may bring suffering into your life. I don't want to sugarcoat it for you. It can, it can cost you. There can be real costs in your life. But Paul is saying, don't you know it is a privilege to suffer for Christ? Becky Pippert, in her book, she has this great insight she says, you know, as American Christians, as American Christians, we have such a narrow slice of reality. And we forget our brothers and sisters in other countries around the world. 
And as I said, she has a, an evangelism ministry where she goes around and she encourages churches and she travels the globe and she meets with believers in you know, all these different countries, many of whom, she says, are living under oppressive and hostile governments. And in these countries, she says, Christians are beaten. They are imprisoned and sometimes even killed for their faith. And it's really hard for us to imagine what that is like, what that culture is like. And she says, these Christians, these brothers and sisters of ours, they do it with joy. They do it with joy because they consider it the highest privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Should we not have that same heart and that same mind? Now, I don't want to overstate the case because Western Christians, we Western Christians, we are not persecuted like our brothers and sisters in these other countries American Christians enjoy, for the most part, religious freedoms. That's not to say these religious freedoms will always be there for us and stable. It is right to maintain these civil liberties, not just for ourselves, but for all people. But, you know, we're not living under an oppressive government in the same way as our brothers and sisters in in communist countries or in totalitarian governments. And so Becky Pipper says, you know, for American Christians, it is our own fears and inhibitions that silences us. And she says, you know, a lot of it is that we imagine that secularism is this strong, confident worldview and Christianity is on the defensive. But she says, we don't realize that secularism, and what I mean by secularism is, Secularism is a worldview. It's actually a religious worldview that says this world is all that there is. This physical life is all that is true. Science explains everything. I was just waiting for the car to pass by. Science explains everything. Um, um, There is no God or, or there's no way that we can know that there is a God. Religion is just a private superstition and therefore you can, you can make up your own rules. You can live whatever life that you want. And secularism is the air we breathe. It's assumed in government and in the media. It's taught in our public schools. Okay, this is our reality. But she says we don't realize that secularism, which is the dominant religion worldview of the Western world, leaves people spiritually empty. It leaves them deeply unsatisfied. This is why we have an epidemic of suicide, depression, addictions. She says many people are hungering. They are desiring for some transcendent meaning. And she gives example after example. And and I wish I had the time to share some of her stories I think one of the values of reading her book is just to read these encouraging stories. The reason is because I have a lot more stories to share with you the second half of the sermons. I don't want to crowd it all up. But she talks about conversations uh, that she's had with people on planes or at the university, in all these different settings. And she says, yes, there's always initial resistance, always. And, you know, sometimes people in the end, they're not interested. And you have to respect that. This is why Peter says in verse 15, 
do it with gentleness and respect. But she says what most people, they don't object to evangelism itself. What they don't like is judgment. They don't want arguments, you know, where the ego is involved. But if you do it with humility and kindness, if you share your personal story, if you talk about what Jesus, uh, what Jesus means for you, how the gospel actually works in your life, you will be surprised that people are genuinely interested in discussion about these deeper issues. And some will reject it. And that's fine. You just have to be courageous and accept that. The third point. So that's uh, number two, uh, the fear of uh, offense. Number three is the belief that the gospel doesn't have the power to save. I uh, recently heard a talk by uh, Rico Tees. Uh, Rico Tees is a London-based evangelist. Actually, I, I, I heard it on the Gospel Coalition podcast, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. They curate different talks for you. So you you know, talks that you wouldn't even think about listening to. You just listen to it, and, and it's great. This particular talk, okay, just slammed me to the floor. It deeply convicted me. And Rico Tees, listen to what he has to say. He says, the reason we don't evangelize is because we don't believe the gospel has the power to save. That's why we don't tell people about Jesus. Because we don't truly believe that people are lost without Jesus. And then he says this. He says, we have to remember that without Christ, people go to hell. Let me say that again. Without Christ, people go to hell. Now, that is offensive in our culture. But he says, if we try to soften it, if we try to minimize it, we take away from the urgency of evangelism. Because unless we truly believe that without Christ, people will suffer eternal torment in hell, we won't be willing to suffer discomfort and rejection to tell people this precious news about Jesus Christ. And what it ultimately comes down to is this. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that it is the very words of life? Is it a thing of beauty and power and wisdom to you so that you are compelled to share? You have to tell people, where is our passion on this? One of the books that I, um, I recently read uh, is Change of Affection by Beckett Cook. Christina read it and she's like, Michael, you have to read this book. It's an incredible story. Beckett Cook uh, was a gay man um, working in Hollywood. He was actually a a set designer. He tried his hand in acting. um, And he kind of lived this sort of glamorous lifestyle. He would go to parties. He he would go to, you know, those Oscar after parties. He worked with and he knew several celebrities. But then one day, he encountered a group of Christians at a cafe. This was in Silver Lake, 
um, which is kind of a trendy town in L.A. And he said this group of Christians, right, openly were all carrying their Bibles and they were having a Bible study right in the middle of everything. And he had never seen that in 15 years of living in L.A. And he was just so aghast at this, right? He was just so intrigued by it that it started a conversation which eventually led to him going to church, which eventually led to his conversion. I got to tell you, this is the most dramatic, the most intense, the most um, powerful conversion maybe that I've ever read about. I was like weeping as I read the story. I don't have the time to tell you the story. I wish I did. I urge you, type in Beckett Cook on YouTube and listen to his testimony. Because he was a man who hated Christianity. He thought it was a bigoted religion. He thought it was anti-gay. And then he met Christ. And he talks about just being overwhelmed by the love of God. And then he was completely transformed. He completely renounced the sexual lifestyle. He started voraciously reading the Bible. He talks about it as, he said, the, the words of Scripture just leaped up at him. And he found every word to be true and powerful. He started listening to sermons nonstop. <laughs> he would listen to Tim Keller sermons. He started reading Christian books. He would read C.S. Lewis and so forth. And then, do you know what happened? After some time, he started to come out to his friends, most of whom were gay and atheists. And he started to share the gospel with his friends. He would send them sermons. He would email them his conversion story. And, you know, some of his friends said, don't proselytize to me. But other friends were interested. And he talks about how, you know, he would go to work, you know, working on set, doing these photo shoots. And he said he couldn't control himself. He would tell everybody on the set about Jesus. He would tell the models, the photographers, the, the support staff. He would share his testimony with anyone who would listen. And I love the way he describes it in his book. He said, I had the best news in the world to share, and I was going to share it. I no longer saw work as just a means to make money, but I saw it as an opportunity to share the good news. And then through Beckett Cook, many people came to know Christ. He has all these stories in his book. One of his best friends, Lisa, became a believer. He has the story of a makeup artist who he worked with who came to faith in Christ. He excitedly told his assistant about the gospel. And he somehow convinced his assistant along with his wife to come with him to church. And after a while of this, you know, his assistant did not end up becoming a Christian. Although Becky Cook is still praying for him. But you know what? His wife became a Christian. And they're both praying. He has story after story of this. Do you know what happened? 
the gospel became an irrepressible joy in his life. It became this wellspring of joy so that he had to, he, he had this overwhelming desire to tell everyone about Jesus. Some of you are saying, some of you are saying, yeah, but Beckett Cook is a new Christian. He has all of that, you know, new believer energy. Wait until it gets older. He'll lose his passion. Maybe. Or maybe it is we who have lost our joy. Maybe it is we who have lost our sense of wonder in the gospel. It's interesting to me that when you read the New Testament, we're constantly being reminded of the sacrificial death of Jesus. Why is that? You know, especially in the epistles, why not just say it once at the beginning and then for the rest of the letter, just focus on ethics or focus on Christian living? But instead, the the New Testament writers, they keep coming back to the death of Jesus. Sometimes just for a single verse, why do they do that? Do you know why? Because we forget. Because when the gospel fades into the background, it loses its power. And you see that in verse in our passage in verse 18. In the passage, Peter is talking about suffering to be a witness for Christ in our evangelistic ministry. And then this is what he says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the answer. When the truth of that burns brightly in your heart, when it dazzles you and amazes you, like the way it did for Beckett Cook, that you, a sinner, should receive the infinite love of God, that God should send his son to die this terrible, agonizing death to save you. When that becomes your treasure, when that becomes the shining jewel of your life, you will have the courage to suffer misunderstanding, maybe mistreatment, even persecution, that some might be saved, that some might be saved. I want to close by sharing a story. I heard this recently, and it really moved me. I heard it on um, Nancy Guthrie's podcast, uh, which is called uh, Help Me Teach the Bible. I, I really love this podcast. It's a kind of a nerdy pastor podcast, although I think it's excellent for everyone. She, she basically goes to um, theology professors and asks them, you know, ask them about specific books of the Bible. So in this podcast, she was interviewing a, ma- um, a professor named Peter Adam, who is a professor in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And she started the podcast by saying, you know, how did you become a professor? How did you get involved? How did you become interested in this subject? And then Peter Adams said, well, it's actually a long story. Do you have the time to hear it? And she said, yes, please tell us the story. Here's his story. So he grew up in a non-Christian home. 
His family went to church, he said, twice a year, Christmas and Easter. But then what happened is that when he was 11 years old, um, he had a school teacher, and his school teacher would constantly talk about his own father, who happened to be a minister. Now, the school teacher was not a believer himself. He rejected Christianity. But the way that he described his father's life, the moral beauty of it, the, the values that he lived by, was so compelling that Peter Adam wanted what that man had. And so he asked his parents to take him to church. And so he started going every week with his father to this local church. And Peter Adam got involved. He sang in the choir. He played the organ. And he said his impression after some time is that the church is where people are nice to each other. That was his understanding of Christianity. Sometime afterwards, he visited his brother who was in college, and he saw the roommate reading his Bible. Now, the roommate was sort of embarrassed by this. He sort of hid the Bible right away. But that moment really struck Peter Adam because he did not know that you could read the Bible on your own. He thought that only trained ministers could read the Bible. So starting that day, every day, Peter Adams started to read his Bible every day. And he said he was searching for God. But he didn't know what he was reading. No one explained to him how to become a Christian. He thought that you become a Christian by being a good and moral person. And he knew he was not. One day, he met an older man on the train, and they struck up a conversation. And at some point in the conversation, this man asked Peter Adam, do you know the gospel? He said, no. The man opened his Bible, and Peter Adam said he was converted within 20 minutes. He says he still remembers the pattern on the carpet as he was staring down hearing about God's love for sinners on the cross. And Peter Adam, he was just amazed by this love. He was overwhelmed by this love. It's actually very similar to, Peter, to Beckett Cook's conversion. And then what happened is this man met with Peter Adam every Tuesday for three years to disciple him. And this man taught him what it means to live a Christian life. Later, Peter Adam became a pastor and a minister, and he actually preached at the funeral of this man when he died. And he said that this, the room at the funeral service, the room was filled with the men that this man had discipled over the years. This story deeply moved me because I want to live a life like this man. I think that so much of what we do, so much of what we put our energy into, in the end, it will be swept away. The only thing that lasts, that will last in the new heavens and the new earth is whatever we do for the glory of God.
what ultimately matters in this life is not how much money we make. It's not the things that we produce. It's not the projects that we complete. What ultimately matters in this life is people. But because people last forever, either in eternal joy in heaven or eternal torment in hell. That's what ultimately matters. And I want you to know that that is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love people who are made in His image and who are lost without knowing Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, Almighty God, we confess that so often our lips are silent. We don't want to stick our neck out. We don't want to risk our friendships or our careers. And practically speaking, we are willing to let people perish. Oh Lord, will you Will you convict us? Will you fill us with the Spirit and propel us out into the world as salt and light in a dark and dying world? Lord, will you raise up among us laborers for the harvest field? Will you give us courage? Will you fill us with your love? Heavenly Father, we also want to pray for the terrible shooting in Atlanta. We grieve with the families of the victims. Oh Lord, will you look upon their tears? Will you look upon their tears and give them your comfort? And we pray for justice. And we pray for the resurrection to come when all things will be made new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.